September 11, 2015, Sky Class over Hilo, Hawaii, and a reading from Shima Bhagavatam, Canto 3, Chapter 5, Vidura's Talks with Maitreya, Text 51. Tato Vayamat Pramukayadarte Tato Vayamat Pramukayadarte Babu Vimatman Karavamakinte Babu Translation in purport by Srila Prabhupada. Translation, O Supreme Self, please give us, who are created in the beginning from the Mahatattva, the total cosmic energy, your kind directions on how we shall act. Kindly award us your perfect knowledge and potency so that we can render you service in the different departments of subsequent creation. So this is the demigods are ending this chapter by asking for empowerment in their service. Um, it's a little bit longer purport. Purport. The Lord creates this material world and impregnates the material energy with the living entities who will act in the material world. All these actions have a divine plan behind them. The plan is to give the conditioned souls who so desire a chance to enjoy sense gratification. But there is another plan behind the creation to help the living entities realize that they are created for the transcendental sense gratification of the Lord and not for their individual sense gratification. So these couple sentences in the purport answer the question also asked by the personified Vedas in the 10th canto of how can we approach the Lord with material things. So Prabhupada's talking about the dual plan of the creation to facilitate the false independent sense gratification of a living entity and to facilitate, to help the living entities realize that their existence is for the Lord's sense gratification. Okay, going on. This is the constitutional position of the living entities. The Lord is one without a second and he expands himself into many for his transcendental pleasure. All the expansions, the Vishnu Tattvas, the Jiva Tattvas, and the Shakti Tattvas, in parentheses, the personality of Godhead, the living entities, and the different potential energies, close parentheses, are different offshoots from the same one Supreme Lord. The Jiva Tattvas are separated expansions of the Vishnu Tattvas, and although there are potential differences between them, by potential differences, Prabhupada must mean differences in potency, they are all meant for the transcendental sense gratification of the Supreme Lord. Some of the jivas, however, wanted to lord it over material nature in imitation of the lordship of the personality of Godhead. Regarding when and why such propensities overcame the pure living entities, it can only be explained that the jiva tattvas have infinitesimal independence, and that due to misuse of this independence, some of the living entities have become implicated in the conditions of cosmic creation and are therefore called nichabadas or eternally conditioned souls. So, of course, here we have the conundrum that the constitutional position of the living entities is to serve the Lord, that there was a when and a why, such propensities for independent sense gratification overcame the, the pure jivas. In other words, the jivas didn't exist eternally in a state of rebellion, and yet we have the word nichabadas, or eternally conditioned. So going on with the purport, the expansions of Vedic wisdom also give the Nichibadas, the conditioned living entities, a chance to improve, and those who take advantage of such transcendental knowledge gradually regain their lost consciousness of rendering transcendental loving service to the Lord. So we have lost consciousness. So it was a consciousness that existed in the living entities. The demigods are amongst the conditioned souls who have developed this pure consciousness of service to the Lord, but who at the same time continue to desire to lord it over the material energy. So here we have an interesting sentence because we have the word pure, and generally in English the word pure means completely pure. But here we have there's pure desires alongside material desires. So the pure desires are pure, the pure desires themselves are not contaminated, but then there are other desires alongside that. Uh, 
we, we generally think of uh, desires as being mixed, 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 you know, a desire being mixed until it's unmixed. But here we see that Prabhupada's talking about a pure desire and an impure desire existing side by side. Uh, perhaps you could think about it of a... I've seen this in some temples where they'll serve some chemical drink, you know, some imitation fruit juice, and alongside that they'll serve paneer made from protected cows taken care of by the devotees on the farm. <laughs> so, you know, they have something that's wonderful and pure, and then the next preparation is something chemical, and they're not mixed together. Then Prabhupada says, says mixed consciousness. So he says that the, the demigods are amongst, we'll read that again, the demigods are amongst the conditioned souls who have developed this pure consciousness of service to the Lord, but who at the same time continue to desire to lord it over the material energy. Such mixed consciousness puts a conditioned soul in the position of managing the affairs of this creation. The demigods are entrusted leaders of the conditioned souls. As some of the old prisoners in government jails are entrusted with some responsible work of prison management, so the demigods are improved conditioned souls acting as representatives of the Lord in the material creation. Such demigods are devotees of the Lord in the material world, and when completely free from all material desire to lord it over the material energy, they become pure devotees, and have no desire but to serve the Lord. Therefore, any living entity who desires a position in the material world may desire so in the service of the Lord and may seek power and intelligence from the Lord, as exemplified by the demigods in this particular verse. One cannot do anything unless he is enlightened and empowered by the Lord. The Lord says in Bhagavad Gita 1515, 15, All recollections, knowledge, etc., as well as forgetfulness, are engineered by the Lord, who is sitting within the heart of everyone. The intelligent man seeks the help of the Lord, and the Lord helps the sincere devotee engage in his multifarious services. The demigods are entrusted by the Lord to create different species of living entities according to their past deeds. They are here in asking the favor of the Lord for the intelligence and power to carry out their task. Similarly, the, any conditioned soul may also engage in the service of the Lord under the guidance of an expert spiritual master and thus gradually become freed from the entanglement of material existence. The spiritual master is the manifested representative of the Lord, and anyone who puts himself under the guidance of a spiritual master and acts accordingly is said to be acting in terms of Buddha Yoga, as explained in the Bhagavad Gita 241. Thus end the Bhaktivedanta purports, which is one of a verse which really affected Srila Prabhupada. Thus end the Bhaktivedanta purports of a third canto, fifth chapter of the Srimad Bhagavatam, entitled Vidura's Talks with Maitreya. Vitovayam mat pramukya yad arte, bavu bimatma karavam akimte, twam na swachakshu paride hishakya deha kriyarte, yad anugrahanam. O Supreme Self, please give us who are created in the beginning from the Mahatattva, the total cosmic energy your kind directions on how we shall act. Kindly award us your perfect knowledge and potency so we can render you service in the different departments of subsequent creation. So these demigods, having within them some pure desires for service, when they want to do something in the world, they ask for three things. They ask for directions, knowledge, and potency. Directions, knowledge, and potency. Whenever we want to do something, this is also what we need. We need some directions, we need some knowledge of how to use those directions, and then we need the power or the potency to follow through with our knowledge and our directions. I'm, I'm trying to set up a system whereby the members of the Shastric Advisory Council can very easily schedule conference calls. It's, it's quite difficult because our members are all in different time zones, and they're often in different time zones on a Monday and on a Wednesday. So we have members who are in different time zones, constantly changing time zones, with constantly changing schedules. So we can't say every Tuesday at 6 o'clock we're going to have a conference call. And we've tried in different ways, you know, we've tried doing it by email, and it becomes so cumbersome that by the time you set up the day, it's already passed. So I'm trying to learn different software for how to do this, and in order to do that, I need these three things. I need information. I need information about what software can do it. I need knowledge of how to use the software. I was talking to the, or writing actually, to the secretary of the sannyas ministry, and he said, yes, we got this software for conference calls for the sannyas ministry, but even though we gave people, the, the members, the information on how to use it, 
because they didn't have enough technical knowledge, they, they weren't able to use the information. And then one has to have the potency, you know, one has to be able to see, one has to be able to hear, one has to be able to type, and, and so forth. And I think we've all experienced what it's like not to have those things. You know, somebody explains to us, someone gives us information how to do something, and we don't have the knowledge or the potency, and, and we feel very helpless and frustrated. Or sometimes we don't even have the information. I mean, there's a, another thing I'm, I'm trying to do where I can't even get the information. You know, I, I ask all different people, I do all kinds of research, and I just, you know, I know what it is I want to do, but I can't even get the step-by-step information on how to do it. And sometimes we're trying to give this to others and we become frustrated, you know. We, we're trying to give people the information, the knowledge, and, but if they don't have the potency, then even if we're able to transmit the information and the knowledge, they just say, I, I can't do it, you know. Or, or we give the information if they don't have the knowledge, they may have the potency, but if they don't have the background knowledge, what we call an education, prior knowledge, then they can't do it. And Srila Prabhupada mentions in this purport that anything, anybody wants to do, it's not just a question of the demigods. Right? He says, one cannot do anything unless he is enlightened and empowered by the Lord. So enlightened refers to information and knowledge, and empowered refers to potency. And this is anybody. Not only any human being, but any anybody. A, a fly, a plant, a, any, any living entity, an amoeba, that in order to act, we're dependent on the Lord. And how foolish we are, how amazingly foolish that we try to deny the fact of our dependence and we try to do things independently, not caring for the Lord, not remembering the Lord, not depending on the Lord. So that's a kind of insanity, a kind of mental illness, so to speak. And therefore, Srila Prabhupada would say that everyone is crazy, right? We had that, I'm sure that's a politically incorrect term nowadays, but in any case, in the beginning of the movement, we had this pamphlet, Who is Crazy? Right? And Prabhupada said, everybody is crazy because we're completely dependent on the information, knowledge, and potency of the Lord to do anything. And at the same time, we're just going around taking the Lord's property, taking the Lord's energy, uh, taking the Lord's uh, empowerment of us, and trying to use that independently. So here we're, looking at, we're going to look at different kinds of empowerment of different living entities, and uh, we may also, if we have time, touch on the very controversial point that Prabhupada brings up in this report. Krishna willing. So there's an empowerment of the ordinary living entities, the, the fully conditioned living entities who don't have any desire to serve the Lord, and the kindness and the mercy of the Lord in empowering living entities who are completely in rebellion to him is really beyond comprehension. No, among the conditioned souls, we attempt to disempower people who are our enemies. And if we could disempower them completely, we would do so. Right? Our people who are really our enemies, we would pulverize them into dust so that they had no ability to act whatsoever. This is the general mood, you know, the... Not too long ago, there was the anniversary of the atomic bombs on Japan. And this mood that we're just going to throw some bomb on our enemy and everything will just be pulverized. <laughs> you know, of course, most of us don't go around throwing bombs and, and murdering and so forth. But this, this concept that I'm just going to destroy anything that gets in my way. And even other people, you know, we just want them out of our life. Uh, or we want them on another planet or something like that. But but Krishna, although he does get the conditioned living entities and to some extent, you could say out of his life and on another planet, he stays with them and he empowers them to do things against him. Krishna even empowers the demons and the atheists. He gives them the knowledge by which they can become atheists. I mean, just imagine that. You know, sometimes after a couple gets divorced, one of the former spouses writes a book, you know, or some sort of expose about all the terrible things that their former spouse did, or people do that with a company, you know, they get fired and they write something about all the improper practices of the company. Hmm? So, <laughs> but Krishna allows that. You know, we don't like that. Hey, what are you doing saying nasty things about me? 
but you were, you know, you were my friend. Why are you doing this? You were my employee. But Krishna's like, okay, you know, you, you were my servant. You're my constitutionally, you're my part and parcel. Everything you have is from me. And yet, he'll, he's saying, I'll give you the facility to blaspheme me. You know, if one of us, if we blaspheme a devotee, our intelligence to blaspheme a devotee, our ability to speak or to write that blasphemy, that comes from Krishna too. You know, that's that's his empowerment. Krishna's giving that intelligence. Therefore, Prabhupada says in that purport in the Bhagavad Gita that Krishna gives people the intelligence to go to heaven or go to hell. I mean, even the, the murderer, the thief, the rapist, the arsonist, Krishna's giving them their ability to engage in sinful activities. He's giving them their intelligence also. We, and people who have some inkling of this says, why does God allow this? Hmm? Why does God allow this? But without allowing this, there's no m- meaning to the freedom of the living entity. Of course, Krishna is so clever that he only allows a living entity to do harm to someone who himself has done harm and who therefore deserves to get that harm back to them in return. So Krishna allows the freedom of the living entity within a karmic situation of utter fairness. All right, then from the ordinary living entity, we go on to the mixed living entity. And many conditioned souls, at least in human form, perhaps most conditioned souls in human form, human-like form among the 400,000 human-like species within the material universes, are within this category of mixed rather than uh, fully in illusion. So the fully in illusion beings are those lower than human beings. Human beings, generally speaking, have some system of religion, have some system of, of worshipping God. And it, it's very nice in the Upadesha Amrita, Rupa Goswami says, that those who are engaged in pious work are favored by the Supreme Lord Hari. I mean, as followers of Srila Prabhupada, Bhakti Sinancha Sarasvati, Bhakti Vinod Thakur, as readers of the Srimad Bhagavatam, we're sometimes very harsh on the Grihamedes and the Karmis, those who are engaged in pious activities according to the laws of God, but who have very mixed motives. We're sometimes very denigrating of them. However, in comparison to the living entities who are completely in illusion, such persons are, according to Rupa Goswami, favored by the Supreme Lord Hari, And any sort of religious government is going to encourage such behavior among the general population. And of course, it's interesting that to be in this situation manifests differently according to a person's nature. And therefore, we have the system of varna and ashrama, so that the ordinary dharma for the living entities is not exactly one. There's different kinds of proper dharma materially for people's different material situations and I I feel that this concept of different ways of understanding or applying Dharma according to one's situation, this individualization of even mundane Dharma is one of the great jewels of the Vedic Shastra. So these are the mixed devotees and depending on the degree and the kind of the purity in that mixture that person gets more and more and more empowered. And Srila Prabhupada compares such persons to senior prisoners in a prison. So just yesterday I was watching a short film of one very extraordinary maximum security prison in Louisiana where the prison warden has taken the term corrections department and corrections officer quite literally. And when he came to that prison, the prisoners who were almost all murderers were engaged in a lot of violence towards each other, and he engaged them in religion. I mean, he chose Christianity because that's his religion, but he has a lot of, his actually churches on the prison property and so forth, and he also engaged the prisoners in farming, which is interesting. And he's transformed the prison. A lot of the prisoners, although most of them are never going to be able to be released by their sentences, have, have changed their behavior and become moral people. And they were interviewing this one man who's in charge of teaching auto mechanics to prisoners who will be released. Now, he himself is never going to be released. He murdered his wife, and he's never going to be let out of prison. But he's teaching the other prisoners how to be auto mechanics. And in order to be auto mechanics, they have to use tools such as heavy sledgehammers, which could conceivably, quite easily in fact, 
kill somebody else. So letting these people who are have been perpetrators of murder, letting these murderers have these tools is almost unheard of in a prison. What to speak of letting a prisoner himself be in charge of teaching the other prisoners how to use these dangerous tools. But, and it, but it's happening in the prison. It's happening within the prison. It's not happening within society in general. And frankly, the same thing is being done with those of us who start deciding, wow, you know, I, I really want to serve the Lord. As our pure desires for service increase in kind and in quantity and start to overshadow our impure desires, we are given responsible posts within the prison house, within the prison house. Now, the fact that the Pearsons given responsible posts of preachers and teachers and cosmic administration within the prison house are, the, are really themselves also prisoners should give us some compassion because, first of all, even if we're empowered by the Lord, there's a good chance that we still have impure material desires. Just because one is empowered by the Lord doesn't mean that one is completely 100% pure. So this fact of the mixed persons being given empowerment should give us pause and humility in our own life. First of all, that whatever empowerment we have is empowerment. It's not our own. The information, knowledge, and potency to do the Lord's work in the world is the Lord's. It doesn't belong to us. So humility in that sense, and also humility in the sense that we can be very empowered and still not be pure. When you're very, very pure, you become a great demigod. You know, not only do you, be, you don't just become a preacher on, this, on the earth planet and a teacher of, of religion on the earth planet, but you also become a great demigod. You can go up to that level uh, but, and, and have that much power. But that much power that, and that much trust from the Lord, like these prisoners, they were trusted with tools where they could conceivably commit murder again inside the prison. Now, you know what? It, it might happen. It might happen that some of these prisoners do misuse that trust. That's entirely possible. In fact, this film didn't present that, but I would say that it's likely that some of those prisoners misuse that trust. So we should also have some humility and compassion in that sense, that when we see the fall down or the difficulty of another empowered person, it doesn't mean they weren't empowered, first of all. And second of all, such should be rather expected because it probably is explaining here that the pure desires and the mixed desires are existing side by side. So for somebody with this situation to misuse their empowerment, to fall from their empowerment, you know, in a prisoner, a prison of murderers and doing car mechanics, if one of them misused the tool to hurt another prisoner, that wouldn't be unexpected. It might be disappointing, but it wouldn't be unexpected. And this, the tendency to be very, very harshly critical of people who are genuinely empowered by the Lord, but who have some difficulty, is condemned by the Lord in Bhagavad Gita 9.30. Krishna in that verse does not condemn the devotee who falls. He condemns those who criticize the devotee who falls. And this point cannot be emphasized strongly enough. Now, obviously, if somebody, if a prisoner in the car mechanic section does use a tool to under, injure another prisoner, you have to remove them from there. Uh, but you don't condemn them. In a sense, they're already condemned just by being in the prison. They don't need to be condemned further. And sometimes they're not removed from their position. We find in the 10th canto with Indra and Brahma where they really messed up. I mean, Indra really messed up. Oh, that was serious. And he messed up twice. I mean, the, the flooding of Vrindavan, it's hard for me to think about anybody I know who's condemned, you know, any devotee who had some difficulty or misused their empowerment, who gets, you know, wholesale condemnation, who would be anywhere near the category of what Indra did, trying to kill everyone in Vrindavan. But Krishna didn't even remove him from his post. I mean, that's pretty amazing. He said, you can stay in the position of Indra, but don't do this again. And when Krishna and Satyabhama go to return the earrings of Aditi, the umbrella, whatever they were returning, I don't remember exactly. So when they were returning the items of the demigods that Bomasura had absconded with, 
And then they also took a Parijata tree. Indra had a war with them over the Parijata tree. So, and still Krishna didn't take him away from his position. So sometimes Krishna removes somebody from their position and sometimes he tries to rectify them within that position. So then, of course, there's the empowerment of the completely pure devotees. So there's, we talked about the empowerment of ordinary living, ordinary conditioned living entities, the empowerment of the mixed devotees, which is particularly relevant to today's verse, and the empowerment of the fully pure devotees. So the fully pure devotees are empowered so much that they're sometimes called Shaktivesh avatar, and sometimes they act practically like God. Sometimes they appear to act more wonderfully than God like Arjuna being the fighter and Krishna being the chariot driver. So sometimes Krishna stands back and lets the devotee appear to be the one doing everything. In this story of Jar- the killing of Jarasandhar, so Jarasandhar attacked Mathura 17 times and was rebuffed 17 times but not killed. Krishna was using him to bring more and more demon soldiers to be, to be removed from the earth. And on the 18th time, Krishna and Balaram didn't kill his army. They simply ran away from the battlefield and they jumped off a mountain and, and ran away. At which time Jarasandra felt very emboldened. He thought, you know, Krishna seems to like to do this with the demons. He seems to like to put them in a position where they feel for a brief time, oh, I've defeated God, because, you know, that's what they want. Anyway, then later in the course of the Rajasuya Yagya, where Jarasandra had to be defeated, both for the sake of the Rajasuya Yagya and for the sake of releasing all the kings he had imprisoned with the intention of offering them in sacrifice. So Krishna didn't battle with Jarasandar, but he had Bhima battle with Jarasandar. And interestingly enough, also, Bhima did not win that battle immediately. It took him about a month, 28 days, to win that battle. And it was only when Bhima said to Krishna, Nashaktoham Jarasandam near Jaitam Yudhimadava. Nashaktoham, I don't have the Shakti. So Bhima made a very similar prayer to that here of the demigods. Uh, you've given me something to do here, but I don't have the Shakti. And then Sukadeva Goswami says, Apyayayam Swena Tejasa, that Krishna empowered Bhima with his own potency. So we have this potency again, knowledge and information. Krishna gave Bhima the information in an indirect, playful way, as is the Lord's modus operandi one could say he likes to do things in indirect playful ways so he split a blade of grass in two and that's how he gave the information and then he gave Bhima the knowledge to understand that information to assimilate it to to, oh that's what he means and he gave him the potency his own potency to do it and Bhima became known as the killer of the great invincible Jarasandhar Krishna didn't become known like that you know Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu he made so many people devotees throughout Orissa and Bengal and through his tour of South India. And then he has Srila Prabhupada, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, make devotees all over the world from all different... But Lord Chaitanya didn't do that himself. I mean, Lord Nityananda, he made one, you know, one uh, pair of brothers, Jaghai and Madai, into devotees. But Srila Prabhupada made so many Jagai and Madais into devotees. Haridas Thakur, he converted one uh, unchaste, promiscuous woman into a great devotee. And Srila Prabhupada turned so many unchaste, promiscuous women into devotees. So the, the, the glories of the devotee are often more than the Lord. The Lord empowers the devotees to do wonderful things that are apparently greater than himself. He may empower his pure devotees to have a superior position to him. You know, as, as an elder chastising him or a beloved refusing him entrance, which is, you know, amazing from the perspective of tattva. So, an intelligent person, which certainly doesn't include myself, but an intelligent person should understand that because everything that I do has to be empowered by the Lord, everything I am is an expansion of the Lord, as Prabhupada explains in the first paragraph here. I am a part of the Lord. I am his expansion. Everything I'm using is his energy, and my ability to do anything is his energy. Well, you know, I, I must be meant for his pleasure. <laughs> I, you know, if, if I'm in your house using your things, then I had better use them for your pleasure. 
if I'm taking your things and using them for my pleasure, uh, then I'm a thief. Right? If I go to my job and your company is maintaining me and I'm using your equipment and I'm using your training, but I'm sitting in the job doing my own business, making my own money for myself. So what, what is that? So an intelligent person will see if, these, if this employer is maintaining me, if they're giving me all facility, I am meant to make business for them. And of course, if you make business for your employer, if they're a moral employer, they will also maintain you. And in fact, if they're a moral employer, employer, they will maintain you very nicely. So the controversy here, which we don't have too much time to get into, quite intentionally so, is why aren't we all in the platform of purity? Why are there any mixed devotees? And why are there ordinary conditioned souls at all? Why does that exist? Because when one tries to enjoy separately from Krishna, as we've all experienced, the result is not very much fun. The result is quite painful, in fact. It, it brings us physical pain, uh, illness and injury. It brings us mental pain of, of anxiety and, and hatred and envy and fear and anger. It brings us pain with other living entities. Those who try to harm us, even, even those who love us, we go through pain with our closest family and friends. It brings us pain from the weather, too hot, too cold, too rainy, too dry. You know, it, it just, it's bringing us into a situation of pain. And then there's birth and death, so we work so hard to establish something. And then it's all taken away, and we start all over again. It's miserable, but even if you say, well, I'll take the good with the bad, etc., eh, you can't even keep it. So, why are any of us even in this situation that it's, it seems that nobody, if it's our constitutional position, as Srila Prabhupada often says, it's our constitutional position to be completely pure, why would we ever be anything else but completely pure? And Srila Prabhupada, as he generally does, simply tells us that the actual story behind this is not one that can be explained. That's, that's his response. The story can't be explained. So, uh, where does he say here? Um... Regarding when and why such propensities overcame the pure living entities, it can only be explained that the jiva tattvas have infinitesimal independence and that due to misuse of this independence, some of the living entities have become implicated in the conditions of cosmic creation and are therefore called nitivada or eternally conditioned souls. It can only be explained that it's a misuse of independence. When you talk about when and why, if you're going to talk about time, when did this happen and why did this happen, the only answer is it's due to misuse of independence. And Srila Prabhupada told us not to become embroiled in this question. I think there's very good reasons for not being embroiled in this question. And I would suggest that those of us who get embroiled in this question are being bewildered by the material energy. Because it's not something that one can understand uh, until one becomes very realized. One of the reasons is the when, the when question. But it's a question that it's something that happens beyond time. The misuse of the independence of the living entities, no matter what theories anybody puts forward about when this happened, the, the where, if we can even talk about where, is beyond the material world where there is no space and there is no time. So to talk about a when in a condition of an eternal present, all of our acharyas in the scriptures say that the spiritual nature is eternal present. There's no past or future. So if there's an eternal present, how can one talk about a when in terms of misuse of independence? How can one talk about terms such as eternal and, and when? It doesn't, it, it doesn't compute. So unless one has achieved the actual position 
of being above time. The question and discussion is just going to lead to fighting on the platform of ordinary dogma. Because the only way one can understand something that occurs beyond time until one is him or herself beyond time is to get into some kind of dogma. And our interpretations of the Shastric statements are going to be contaminated by our own view of time and our own view of space, none of which are relevant to this question. And the why, Prabhupada says, this was due to misuse of independence. And I think the problem with understanding that statement is, is simply pride. That why would I misuse my independence? So exactly how we misused our independence, under what situation, you know, where were we in, in, a, in a non-spatial sense, I, I don't see that that can be answered. I want to refer in this connection to the fact that Maharaj Pariket asked this very question. He asked this question in Bhagavatam 287. He says, O learned Brahmana, the transcendental spirit soul is different from the material body. Does he acquire the body accidentally or by some cause? Will you kindly explain this for it is known to you? So, this question of, of how did we get here, why are we here? Why, why are we identified with this body and suffering is also asked by Maharaj Prickett. Now, you might find, as, as I do, that Sukadeva Goswami's answer doesn't really satisfy uh, a, a materially conditioned soul just simply intellectually. So he gives the answer. He starts off his answers because Maharaj Prickett asks a lot of questions in Bhagavatam 2.8 and Sukadeva Goswami then uh, has, gives the answers one after another. And he starts off with this question, although it wasn't the first question that Maharaj Prickett asked, it's the first question that Sukadeva Goswami answers. And he answers this in 2, 9, 1, 2, and 3. So we'll read the translation of these answers. He says, O king, unless one is influenced by the energy of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, there is no meaning to the relationship of the pure soul in pure consciousness within the material body. The relationship is just like a dreamer seeing his own body working. Verse 2, the illusion living entity appears in so many forms offered by the external energy of the Lord while enjoying in the modes of material nature the encaged living entity misconceives thinking in terms of I and mine and text 3. As soon as the living entity becomes situated in his constitutional glory and begins to enjoy the transcendence beyond time and material energy, he at once gives up the two misconceptions of life, I and mine, and thus becomes fully manifested as the pure soul. Uh, the word time, specifically in this purport, is kala. So here's his answer, Sukadeva Goswami's answer as to the when and why of our being conditioned. He says it's beyond time. It cannot be explained in terms of when. Uh, and it's due to the energy of the Lord. He says otherwise it's impossible. So that's his only answer. Sukadeva Goswami says one is not really entangled, which is something our Acharyas often say as well, that the living entity is not really illusioned, the living entity is not really conditioned, uh, the living entity is simply falsely identifying by the energy of the Lord. And it's compared here in the Shastra to a dream, Swapna. So Srila Prabhupada often talks about how in dreams we may take on different bodies and Whenever I hear, hear Prabhupada say that, I would always think, well, I don't do that. When I dream, I'm in this body, in this life. But a couple nights ago, I had a dream where I was in a different body, completely different body than I am in this life. And I was with my friends and family in the dream, and I was telling them, hey, I'm Armila. <laughs> and they said, well, why do you look like that? And I said, well, I'm not my body. <laughs> this is Somehow I'm in a this different body. Hmm? So, but I'm not really, right? It's not actually that I was in that other body. I was some in my dream. I was in some Oriental body, and it's not actually. That's not really happening. And I didn't really have that conversation with my family. It didn't happen. I imagined that it happened. I, I imagined that it happened, and the energy of the Lord allowed me to imagine that it happened, just like, you know, some intoxicant allows people to imagine something. If somebody takes some hallucinogenic drug, 
And if they're sitting in a room with other people who are sober, the person who's hallucinating, they may say, oh, you know, there's monsters, there's this, there's that, there's rainbows, and oh, look at the rainbows. And the, the sober person says, well, there's no rainbows here. By the influence of the, of the drug, they think that these are happening. You know, they think they can jump out of a window and fly and so many things. You know, or I like to give the example of a, of a film, of a movie. So by the energy of the filmmakers and the film directors, a person imagines, oh, I'm, I'm going along with these people in the movie. I'm jumping out of helicopters. I'm killing the bad guy. I'm winning the beautiful woman, whatever. But it's not. That they're not actually, it's not really happening to them. And therefore, this world is called an illusion. It's not an illusion in the sense of non-existence. A movie exists. A dream exists. But it's not what it appears to be. And why, why does a living entity become covered by this energy of the Lord? Because a living entity wants to become covered by this energy of the Lord. Why does someone go to a movie? Because they want to. Why do they take some intoxicant? Because they want to. So... And that's the answer. The answer is that it's beyond time, that it's due to the desire of a living entity, the energy of the Lord, and that as soon as one no longer wants to be in that energy, fully, as soon as one wants to be out of that intoxicant, it's out of that illusion, then... Uh, and it's interesting, this verse 293, Yarhi at any time. So Sukadeva Goswami said, at any time that one wants to become free of maya and, and be situated in one's real glory beyond time, and then one achieves this. I, many years ago I read about this one man who, uh, long story, but anyway, he had some experience of like Brahman realization. And he was saying that all the, the ways of describing all the analogies used to describe the return to one's original consciousness cannot really be understood by someone who's in covered consciousness. He, he said that really one's original consciousness just is. It, it's what one is. He said when we talk about it as a journey home or we talk about it as a process, he said that such talk it, it may be necessary for those in, in a covered consciousness, but when one, when one achieves the actual consciousness, though that language doesn't really make any sense anymore. Because one is always in the present. So I, I really feel very strongly that fighting over this point is not helpful. That is the kind of point that has to be realized and simply things should be presented that our original consciousness, our constitutional position is Jivara Swarupaya Krishna Aranyachadasa. We are eternally servants of Krishna. That is who we are. That is our position. And nothing ever changes that. It's, it's always been. It always is. It always will be. And exactly the when and the why of how we've forgotten that will be understood by us when we regain it. And then it will be perfectly clear. And to those to whom it's perfectly clear, they may explain it in different ways to those who cannot yet understand it. I think it's something like, and this is an example Satsupra Maharaj gave many years ago to me, someone who's already an adult trying to explain romance and sexuality to children below puberty. So they can't really understand it. I mean, there's, there's not really any way of explaining it where other children understand it because their, their feelings have not yet awakened. And so different adults may explain it in different ways and it may even appear to be contradictory ways. But once one attains puberty, everything makes sense. So I see that our acharyas and our scriptures may sometimes explain this in different ways. I mean, the way Sukadeva Goswami explained it almost sounds like you know, we're, we're just having a dream somewhere. And it, it's interesting because I know some devotees who say, oh, it's, it's opposite unto to say that actually we're just, yeah, but it's right there in the Bhagavatam in the second canto. It's, it's definitely a way of explaining it. 
but it, I would put this question in a similar category to some of the very um, Rasika topics. So we find that our acharyas, especially Bhakti Siddhanta and Srila Prabhupada, uh, B.R. Sridharmaraj, particularly those three, they were really heavy on people trying to delve into Rasika topics without qualification. Very heavy. And, and so heavy, in fact, that sometimes people would criticize them and saying, well, you know, are you just, is this just vaidi? Aren't you going to teach about the whole purpose of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is to open up the storehouse of rasa? But if people try to jump in without qualification, not only will they not understand, but they may end up doing things which are harmful. Instead of purification, they may get putrefication. I mean, reading about Bhaktisiddhanta, who's saying some of these people who are geographically living at Radhakund, they're actually living at Narakakund. They're actually living in hell. And, you know, Srila Prabhupada makes some statements about if you hear Bhagavatam from professional reciters that nobody gets any benefit. And these, these heavy, heavy, heavy statements. But we do find that when Srila Prabhupada found someone who'd actually awakened their taste, then he was only encouraging. If someone says, oh, I, I've awakened my, my taste, or so-and-so's awakened their taste, they, love, they want to love Krishna as a cowherd boy, Prabhupada said, oh, this is wanted, this is wonderful. So as soon as the person started getting the qualification, Prabhupada was only encouraging. But for people who didn't, didn't have the taste, who didn't have an awakening, and who just said, oh, I want to read, you know, all the rasa books, I want to read Vidagda Madhavan, I want to read Gita Govinda, and Udvala Nilamani, and they'd say, no, you know, this is not for you. So first deserve, then desire. I, I think there are certain questions and certain topics which... In a, in a conditioned state, we can understand to some extent. We can get enough understanding that we should feel intellectually and emotionally pacified. And then we wait for revelation. Like Prabhupada wrote to Ekayani, better you go to the spiritual world and find out the answers to these questions yourself. And there are, there are certain questions that are in that category. We might like to try to force it. And like with our intelligence to, you know, ghosts, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. But that's not exactly a very intelligent thing. And we find that the answer to this question uh, everywhere, in the scriptures, by the acharyas, it's couched in uh, indirect language and in, in, in vague answers. The answer Sukadeva Goswami gives to Maharaj Purkit is not specific. Sukadeva Goswami does not say, oh, somebody was a cowherd boy with Krishna and then they did this. He doesn't give that kind of answer. He doesn't say, oh, they were manifested from Mahavishnu and then they looked this way and that way. He doesn't give that kind of answer. And we will not find that kind of answer. It's not what we find. We find an answer saying simply, the jivas have misused their independence since time without memory. And their original position is beyond time. That's the answer that we find. And when one awakens, one awakens to one's original constitutional position. Uh, anything else in this regard, quite frankly, uh, should not be indulged in. Any, any, more, any more than one should not be indulging in um, the intimate pastimes of Radha and Krishna before one has awakened to one's position. So, sorry for delving into the controversy. You guys can tar and feather me if you want. Hare Krishna. Uh, explained about the process of creation quite nicely. Um, so, uh, there's Mahavishnu who uh, takes a pradana, turns into Mahatattva, Ahamkara, the, the gunas, the elements. You gave the example, just like in the kitchen, you have raw uh, ingredients, they, you haven't made anything yet. Um, there's the glance of the Lord. And then, uh, Garbhadakshaya Vishnu uh, is a, a, there's, uh, creates the Brahma, and then uh, the planets, the demigods, and then the bodies of the living entities. So now, we've just covered all these verses of the prayers of the demigods to be empowered. Um, to me, it seems like a little bit uh, abrupt out of sequence, because 
um, all of a sudden the demigods are here and they're praying to be empowered. Um, do you see what I mean? It's not like a sequential, but... Uh, well, well, right here, if you look in the verse, in the purport, Prabhupada's specifically talking about the demigods manifesting the bodies of the living entities according to those desires of the living entities. So he's particularly talking about the role of the demigods in creation. Um, so that what the demigods are being asked can whoever's typing stop typing because it's making a funny noise? The demigods are specifically asking to be empowered to create. So this is, of course, within the secondary creation. The, the first creation is of Mahavishnu. The secondary creation is of Garbhadakshai Vishnu. So this is within the creation of Garbhadakshai Vishnu. Uh, Judah Karmapu likes to use the term human devolution, that the creation goes from higher to lower. So first Lord Brahma is created by the Lord directly, then Lord Brahma creates the demigods first. And the demigods then create all the other living beings. So the demigods here are asking for empowerment to create all the living beings. So we were, we were going from the first creation to the second creation now here, here the demigods have this more or less empty universe that they're charged with creation and they just like Brahma did to Pasya for empowerment so the demigods here are praying for empowerment to do what they're being asked to do okay is that it? Sure, just one last question I, I'm not clear about. Uh, sometimes it's described that the, all the planetary systems are within the stem of the lotus. I know it's technical, but just uh, is that where we're situated in the universe? My understanding or? is that was true in the beginning when they were in a seed-like form. Uh-huh. I, I may not be correct, but that's my understanding, that they, every, all the planets were in the stem of the lotus and they in a seed-like form, and Brahma finding them then manifested them. Okay, okay. That's what I understand. I, mean, I don't have the yogic power to go and see it for myself. Okay, thank you. I have a question. Yes. Uh, what's the reason for Krishna, or the spiritual master, I'm asking the servant to engage in a service for which one does not have the Shakti and how to receive that Shakti if Krishna wants us to do it. So why is why does the Guru ask somebody to do something for which they don't already have the Shakti? There's a letter yeah. that Prabhupada writes, and I've got to memorize this, I just haven't had the time to do it, where he talks about that we're not really interested in big, big things, where if we just you know, preach to one person in a day or that day is successful. And in that letter, he says something about that the purpose of all the external things is just to have, and I'm really paraphrasing, is just to have a field where we can put our philosophy into practice. So what is our philosophy? Our philosophy is that of depending on the Lord for empowerment and engaging in his service. If we're only giving service for which we already have the Shakti, there's a strong tendency to think in terms of I and mine, that I am the doer. And when we're given a service for which we don't yet have the information and the knowledge and the potency, which the spiritual master, Krishna, seems to do this over and over and over again. He seems to put us in situations where we don't have the information, knowledge, and potency to do what we need to do. <laughs> to do what we need to do he may put us with another person that with the information, knowledge and potency we presently have we can't get along with that person we can't accomplish anything with that person and why? so that we actually go through the bhakti process if we weren't put in such situations we might never apply the principles of bhakti or we might think I'm already applying the principles of bhakti just see you know, it, this world, is, this situation is for us to learn. 
as Prabhupada says here in this purport, for us to realize that we're meant to serve the senses of the Lord. So if we're, you know, if when you're a teacher, if you only give people things that they already know how to do, then they, they never progress. And they can easily think that they're already accomplished. Prabhupada said good management is to give people, you know, fresher challenges that they rise to meet them. And it's also very pleasurable. I mean, even Krishna is always expanding and then expanding his knowledge of himself and always learning more about himself and always presenting basically new challenges for himself. So this is the art of management and it's not only how the guru manages but how our local leaders should manage, how Krishna manages. That he, you know, he puts you in a situation where you have to gain more information, knowledge and potency and you have to depend on the Lord and by... And, and you have to remember that you're doing it for the Lord, that you're doing it for His pleasure, for His potency. And by going through that process, you say, oh, Krishna consciousness is real. Krishna consciousness works. I, I don't see how without going through that process that one could gain that, that realization. At least that's my own personal experience in my own life. Now, over and over and over and over again, I get put in situations that are beyond my current information, knowledge, and potency. It, it happens over and over again. And my first response as a conditioned soul is just to use what I already have and, and, to, and it doesn't work. You know, it just doesn't work and I'm like beating my, you know, like that Bonasura who was beating his hands against the mountain, you know. And, and, and then I have to say, well, help me. Help me. And I have to look at my motives and I have to say, who am I doing this for? What is my purpose? What's, what's driving me? Am I doing this to gain something in the world on a gross platform? Am I doing it to gain something in the world on a subtle platform? You know, or am I doing it to make Krishna smile, make the Prabhupada smile? What's, what's driving me? And I have to ask that question because... I'm not successful with the old drivers, you know, and, and I, then I have this, we're changing the motivation, then I have to change the method, and so Krishna empowers me, and Krishna loves to empower us in ways where it's very obvious that it's Krishna empowering us, he loves to do that, once we get in that mood, Whoever's washing the dishes, could you please stop? <laughs> Whoever, you know, once we get in that, in that mood that Krishna, I'm doing this for you and your empowerment, he's so playful, you know. He empowers us in ways where we cannot claim credit. We cannot. And he does this even to the pure devotees, what to speak of those he's teaching, because this reciprocation goes on eternally. Like Prabhupada was called by Bhakti Siddhanta. You know, you please preach in English to English-speaking people. And Prabhupada took that kind of a step further and said, well, my guru sent people to the West. Maybe I should preach to English-speaking people in the West. And London didn't work. Maybe I'll go to New York. And he thought, all right, well, to do that, I have to earn a lot of money. So he had this business. He tried to make the business very successful. It was very successful. And then right at the point where he was ready to retire from family life and use all that money in preaching... The business failed completely. He lost everything. And he became so poverty-stricken that for four or five years he was living without a set residence and without money for return train journeys. He'd have a few paisa to take a train journey to see a potential donor, and he did not have the paisa for a return. And Srila Prabhupada, in talking about this, he, he said that at first he was thinking, why did Krishna do this? Did I make some mistake and Krishna's punishing me? And then he realized, he said, then I realized that Krishna wanted me to start this movement in another way. And not for Prabhupada himself, although there's something playful going on between Krishna and Prabhupada himself also, undoubtedly, but also for the rest of us, that nobody could look at Prabhupada's achievement and say, oh, this is because he was, you know, a rich, well-connected person. But we all look at his achievement and say, wow, this was only spiritual potency. This was only Krishna's empowerment. There was nothing else going on here. Because there was nothing else. He was old. He was ill. 
He spoke antiquated British English with a heavy, heavy Indian <laughs> accent. He didn't have any connections. You know, he was he was befriended by drug addicts and alcoholics on the Bowery. And, you know, he didn't have money to pay more than a month's rent. So how did he do it? He did it through spiritual potency. And this happens in our lives, too, that we're put in situations where we don't have any of the resources and we have to beg for, for Lord Chaitanya's empowerment. As Krishna Das Kaviraj says, one who remembers Lord Chaitanya, difficult things become easy. One who forgets him, easy things become difficult. And as we pray, as the demigods pray here, as we pray for that potency to do the service that's been given to us or the service we're inspired to do, we see Krishna giving it to us in interesting, playful ways. Interesting, playful ways. Amazing ways. And sometimes having setbacks and reverses. And I was just reading this yesterday in the 18th chapter of the first canto. How the devotee sees the reverses as also Krishna's kindness. That the reverses are to help us change our our method and change our course. So this is why. To enter into this sweet relationship with the Lord. To enter into this, this dance with the Lord. As Prabhupada says, we should dance with Krishna, not alone or with anyone else. So, to dance with Krishna and to delight in the in our smallness, to delight in our inability, our complete smallness and our complete inability to relish our dependence on the Lord, to, to relish our empowerment by the Lord, to relish using our empowerment by the Lord, to then turn around and serve the Lord. That is the point. And we don't generally do this voluntarily if we're in a situation where it appears that we don't need that. So thank you very much, Shri Prabhupada.